Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Catholic Connect podcast on another beautiful day that the Lord has made. Welcome to all of our listeners from across Canada, the United States, or wherever you listen to this podcast in our fine universal church of ours. Well, let's start with a quote, as we always do, and it is from one of the superstars of our Catholic Church. Quote, Humility is the foundation of all the other virtues hence. In the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except in mere appearance. End quote. From the great Saint Augustine of Hippo. And boy, that couldn't, couldn't come at a better time, right? As we record this, we uh, are kind of plowing through the month of June, which uh, really should be a big celebration for us in the Catholic Church. It is the month dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And uh, boy, talk about humility and uh, something that we can aspire to, something that we should be meditating on. Uh, And just as this quote would say, humility being the foundation of all virtue, we know what the opposite is. The opposite of humility is pride. And pride is at the heart and uh, the foundation of every sin, right? It's the opposite of humility. And uh, as we try to navigate our way through this world that has completely turned its back on Jesus Christ and on life and on truth, uh, it's good to know that we have many saints, uh, all the saints at our disposal to uh, to intercede for us at the, the right hand of God. And they've seen some Real tough times too, just like we're living through right now, but always good to remember that the Lord picks us to live in a time in the world, the chapter in the history of salvation. He's given us that pen to write that chapter and we're here for a reason. So let's continue to follow God's will, discern God's will, find that quiet time every day and live in a state of grace and growing in relationship with Jesus Christ on this uh, long and narrow road to eternity. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm really happy to have this guy on Team Jesus, on Team uh, RC, like I like to say, Adam Sos from Rebel News. And uh, speaking of a lot of uh, misunderstanding, what do they call it, misinformation, I guess, disinformation. Uh, I guess we get accused of that often uh, on our side of the fence here. But, uh, you know, calling the truth for what it is is so important. And uh, last year, if we learned anything, We've learned that, uh, well, there's a lot of, um, uh, of open wounds, I guess, when it comes to residential schools in Canada, and uh, a lot of uh, horrific stuff happened there. Uh, unfortunately, the Catholic Church really got caught in the crossfire with this, and uh, you know what, and in some cases, not every case, but in some cases, unjustly so, I don't think there's any question about that now, and uh, the narrative has definitely been painted against the church, and uh, we are kind of paying the price for that when it comes to the way the church is looked at in the public square. Not that that should mean anything. I mean, Jesus warned us about this in the gospel. He said that, uh, you know, it was going to be a tough time for us to be a, a follower of Jesus Christ. The The payment at the end is worth it. Of course it's worth it. Going to heaven, it's a, an amazing place that awaits those who love our Lord. But uh, it's going to be a bit of a rocky road getting there. So our job is to expose the truth and to bring the truth to light in charity and humility, but also with a firmness as well. So Adam and I tackle that a little bit in this conversation. And we also talk about some of the things that uh, Rebel is doing here with um, just defending some of the pastors that we've seen in the last year or so, um, defending them against these unjust mandates. And uh, really, I think the focus of all this and what I've taken out of the last year is that 
we need the spiritual life. We need a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we need each other in community. And when that's taken away from us, we really see the ramifications of that in society. We've seen mental health go downhill very quickly for a lot of people, especially young people. I think that's the most heartbreaking of it all. And when I say young people, I'm not even talking about young adults. I'm talking about children too. And uh, so who knows where we're going to be heading here after the last couple of years. All I can say is as things kind of loosen up a little bit, uh, don't let your guard down. You know, a lot of the solutions that are being proposed by our governments and society in general, they don't include the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's our job in the church. That's our job is to bring Jesus Christ forward as the solution. And uh, man, that is a, a great responsibility. And I'm so happy to share that with you. So without further ado, let's get to this great conversation with our friend Adam Sos. We'll see you on the other side of the interview, my friends. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. Well, Adam Sos is a Calgary-based Rebel News journalist who spent his life fighting to defend and share the truth. And whether that be upholding freedoms or fighting cancel culture or sticking up for small business, uh, most importantly, though, he is a family man and our brother in Christ. Hey, welcome back, Adam, to the Catholic Connect podcast. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Adam, a lot has changed and a lot has happened since the last time we chatted uh, late last summer, early fall. And uh, before I get into a few different topics and, and current events, it seems like the news changes so fast and every day there's something to talk about. But uh, your first appearance on our podcast, we chatted about that uh, that project that you spearheaded through Rebel News. And I always like to call it an act of virtue doing instead of virtue signaling, which we just see so much of in today's world. But uh helping to crowdfund and uh, repairing a Catholic church at the Satina First Nation just outside of Calgary. So how did that end up going? Have you received, have you received some feedback since? And uh, how did that sort of affect the way you you looked at, uh, you know, just communicating with the First Nations and seeing what their needs truly are at the ground level? Yeah, you know, it's absolutely incredible. I've always had sort of a, a an underlying, at least at the very least, interest or appreciation or sort of kinship with our sort of indigenous brothers and sisters. I feel like within society, um, even within the church, but broadly speaking, there's sort of this artificial divide that's been very much fed into by uh, whether it be politics, um, even talking to some of our indigenous brothers and sisters, they often talk about this smoke screen where this government uh, wants you to get the sentiment that you're not allowed to ask questions or have conversations with them and they're to be left alone. Uh, that's not the sentiment when uh, I gathered, at least when I actually went and spoke with them um and it's very much sort of instilled in me like uh a hope and a sort of renewed passion and and, and fire if nothing else um that these people very much they're dealing with the same frustrations very often more frustrations um they very often feel abandoned um they feel like there are a ton of resources out there but they're not necessarily getting uh to the people um so i think the capacity to uh, basically just listen, have conversations with them, treat them not like someone other or someone aside, but as as just another sort of brother, sister, uh, fellow countryman, whatever you want to call it. Um, they appreciate that and they can see straight through the phony sort of political outreach that they get from some people, or they can see someone who walks up to them and looks them in the eye, has a conversation with them. Um, one of the first... Um, conversations I had when I actually got out there uh, at this church and sort of learned a little bit about their story. And this was when uh, uh, Ruby Starlight, basically, who invited me out there said, uh, listen, uh, it'd be nice if we could do something for this church. It's it's in rough shape. My grandpa, uh, some family members built it. Um, she introduced me to Bruce, who was a uh, 
one of the sort of elders out there. And he said, listen, like you're a white boy, I'm an Indian. Um, we can get over that and then we can start working together. Um, so he very much got straight to the like, we're both human beings. And he said, let's sit down and have tea together. Like that doesn't happen in Canada. His words, not mine. He's like, we need to get to those points where instead of throwing money around um, and, and not addressing the underlying issues, we actually work together. Listen, I think that there is an underlying racism um, it could be overt racism, it could be a racism of low expectations, whatever you want to call it. But I think issues that are being left unaddressed uh, on Indigenous, in, within Indigenous communities would not be left unaddressed within white communities or within rural or urban communities. Um, there, there's this sort of, well, they're a little bit less or they're a little bit different. So we, we don't have the same standards for them. And I think that's what we really have to get rid, rid of. We have to get rid of that stigma and that separation and realize we're more, more alike than we are different. I was listening back to some of those uh, those interviews and the uh, the chats that you had with the folks there, and uh, the one thing that that they mentioned, and I I know I remembered from my time when I was on a missionary team and we went up to the Northwest Territories, Adam, is that uh, when we were there, very gentle people, very forgiving people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was really um, not not surprised at all in, in the least, but just um, it was just more than I was expecting, you know, even as a Catholic and as a Christian or people of goodwill, you know, we kind of have an expectation of, of course, there's a gentleness, there's, there's, uh, there's open, an openness to forgive people. And when I was, when I was up there, I was one thing I was really, uh, quite, um, pleasantly, um, really happy about it. it. Just gave me a lot of peace when I was talking to them about their, uh, you know, the history of the church and their history, even with, with residential schools, a lot of folks from the Northwest territories were involved with that as well. But, uh, you know, a real uh, genuine need, but also just that um, an outreach towards others saying, hey, we just want to have conversations, thoughtful dialogue. And uh, and then having that uh, that kinship of being baptized, Adam, right? That means something. It's hard to explain to people that aren't maybe baptized in the Christian faith, but there is that kinship that we share with each other. And I just think that's so uh, that's so beautiful, isn't it? 100 percent. you know it's so interesting i think it even extends uh beyond that because i know that for for some of the people out there um there's both a sort of resolute guardedness but also this gel- gentle welcome um i know a couple of times because basically i spoke I, I of course spoke with the chief out at sutina before we started doing this work um, Chief Roy Whitney, um, and got his sort of blessing and permission to be out there. And he said, you don't need to check in, just go out there. Uh, they can, and if anyone has a problem, they can call me. The amount of times actually, because this was right when we saw all the churches being burnt and the mass vandalism stuff, like several times the uh, Tutina police like raced up and were like, what are you doing here? Because they thought someone was doing something to their church. Um, when we were kind of there for the initial scouts or filming, doing fundraising, um, or even one lady rolled up and let her big dogs out at me and I had to run back to my car. And she's like, she comes over and she says, what are you doing to our church? And I tell her who I am. And she goes, oh my God. So right away they go like to, they're a family member and they're hugging you and saying, this is so great. Um, some of these people, members of the church, some not members of the church. Um, but I think what what it meant for them, for someone to not just be getting a sound bite from them or parading them out to make some point or using them as a, see, we've got the endorsement from these people, but me actually being there, talking to them, saying, listen, like, what can we do for you? What do you need from us? Um, and more so... 
it was interesting it was very much it wasn't forced in any way shape or form how it all started and i think we talked about this last time was we were actually at calgary stampede um and there's the elbow river camp which is sort of the indigenous culture area and we were there started to talk started to talk to some people there um and one person ended up being part of this family we actually talked to uh the, some members of the crowfoot family as well regina crowfoot which is like crowfoot trail um so they're very like sort of influential right. families so they invited us out and they were just she was this this person I, I think she would consider herself probably uh regina is definitely a practicing catholic but ruby like a lapsed catholic or a kind of in connection with her faith but has some hurts from the church so um but she very much was just wanted to show me part of her heritage tell me the story about her how her family helped build this church it was on land that i believe her grandfather had donated um so it was very much like they just wanted to show us part of their culture and then no intention just to have us do something but you said you know like the roof's leaking there's this that and the other thing it'd be really nice if someone could do something and then i immediately looked at my cameraman and started nodding um and then he kind of like knew my thought process immediately i called our boss right after and said this is what we're going to do and he said of course we are that's obviously what we're going to do um so and then just for me to follow up and say hey listen like we'd like to uh we'd like to pay for a new roof at the very least see what else we can do um, and it was incredible because not only that, we also had a pest control company come in and voluntarily do a full sort of pest management situation. Another, and they didn't want any credit. Another company, um, it was Peregrine Pest Control, just in case anyone wants to support them. Um, another company, they're like, oh, we don't even, even want to be named. But because it's a sort of pseudo historical building, um, they had to have a custom window made, which isn't cheap. This company just did it and said they'd be out to install it, no problem. And then I think it took us like 18 hours to raise 12 grand to replace Incredible, this roof. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was, it was instant. We had to stop donations because it like, blew past the target in no time flat um then we called them back and said we're doing this they were almost in a state of disbelief but uh Mm. yeah it was pretty incredible and we actually got it got it done yeah that was so good i I was so um so happy to see that response from so many people and uh not that i you know i guess you know we've become so cynical in today's world right that uh when you see these uh these acts of kindness and uh you you kind of uh, you're taken aback a little bit but I'm sure there's a lot of different donors and they're probably, you know, just chipping in 20 bucks, you know, 50 bucks, hundred bucks, whatever it takes. Right. And, and to see uh, people pull together and do that. Uh, so, so good. Um, Pope Francis uh, issues the apology uh, just a couple months ago here. Um, it seems like this, this has all been happening for years already, uh, yeah. but uh, now he's, he's coming to Canada, uh, uh, hoping and praying that he's still, makes it out the plan is that he's going to come next month as we record this in june and uh, he will be actually coming into alberta uh, is, the, is the plan right now and that's part of uh, building that reconciliation with the first Nations. so um and like you mentioned uh, earlier too adam we've seen some you know disturbing and, and frankly disgusting this desecrations of catholic churches and even some non-catholic churches as well some completely innocent bystanders in this whole thing um, you know, I was thinking about the, uh, the, the burning of many on, on first nations land, but, um, keep going back to this, you know, this very, uh, the secular, um, sort of saying, and, and, and these guys spouting off saying, you know, that somehow Catholics deserve all these churches to burn down. And there was this picture from last year, and I think it was, it was just shortly after we chatted at him, but it was from the Bishop of, uh, Gerard McClellan. And he was uh, confirming this beautiful group of children, uh, First Nations children, must have been 20 or 25 of them. And they were on the front steps of their their Catholic church. And uh, that same church burned down, I think it was a week later. And I said, you know, 
wouldn't it be nice if these seculars would go up to those kids, those First Nation kids, and say somehow they deserve for their church to be burned down? You know, it's just it's just insane this world, isn't it? But what are your hopes, I guess, for you know the First Nations for sure, but also just the Catholic Church, all of us. We're we're all on one team. We're all on, we're all on Team Jesus here. So yeah, what are your hopes for this papal visit to Canada? Well, you know, it was really interesting. I was out at Siksika as well when their church when they experienced arson. Um, and we met with the local sort of priest there. And it was interesting. We went into the church um, and some of the sort of outdoor displays that you would normally see were actually like near the altar rather than on the sort of front steps. And I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. And what's this about? And he said for the locals there, the reason that was brought inside was because they, they weren't putting the shoes out as a sort of protest. And I've heard this from many Indigenous people. I'm sure for some it is a protest when it's at City Hall or whatever. Um, but for these people, they wanted it to be that close to Jesus and that close to the altar so that the church should, could kind of be hard, part of the healing process. Um, so they wanted it. was It's so intimately interconnected with their sort of uh, their lifestyle and their day-to-day lives, almost like I think probably Catholicism was for us a long time ago, maybe for our parents if they were practicing Catholics. Um, it's just part of their life. So they're like, it needs to be part of the healing process um one of the things for sure that i think the church needs to do um we talk about reconciliation but there's also this notion of truth and reconciliation um i think very often when we're dealing with indigenous issues uh nominally one of the ones i'm extremely passionate about is sort of ending boil water advisories and actually providing clean drinking water and it's not only clean drinking water i want to remind people out there that there's indigenous communities where the kids can only take one bath a week because the water is so acidic it would burn their skin there's communities where and this is just from what they're telling me the women tend to wash the dishes in this community um, but all the women's arms you can see they're a different color from the sort of forearm down because the water is so acidic um, I talked to Jocelyn Bergewick who's a Métis sort of engineer who works on water solutions um, and in many of these cases what happens is you have these big corporate entities SNC Lavalin Standard General there's a couple other companies um, and they will get these sort of standard box cookie cutter contracts for these mega Uh, water cleansing stations that cost like 10 million, $40 million. Very often there's really simple solutions in place that sort of with local guidance and, and, and some educated spending, they could do that. But these major contractors, they get a sort of flat percent off the contract. So they don't want 3% of a $1 million fix. They want a $42 million, 11 year contract. And in the meantime, you're seeing like carcinogenic water and acidic water. um, And these people are suffering. And these are people in Canada, often mere hours away from, from major towns. Um, So there are, there are very real sort of, and I mean, borderline like cataclysmic or at the very least human rights violations taking place on these indigenous, within these indigenous communities um, that aren't in line with the dignity of a human person. Um, so while that's happening currently, I can tell you that so many of the actual indigenous people that I speak to, not necessarily the people that Trudeau will roll out for an event to sort of go along with his, what he's trying to get the message out across, they're like, how about instead of just focusing on the past, as part of the effort of, of truth and reconciliation, we fix some of the current problems. Because we're basically repeating so similar sort of racist, colonial, uh, ridiculous mistakes and not providing clean drinking water and even bathable water for communities that are suffering 
right now while we're saying, oh, look at the past, look at the past. Um, so I think one of the big things that I'm hoping for is that whether it be the church, whether it be politicians, whether it be uh, the Pope offering some sort of advice, it's let's let's sort of remedy the uh, injustices that are going on now. And I can tell you from the people I've spoken with within the Indigenous communities, that is the sentiment I'm hearing over and over and over again. Uh, the other thing that I think sort of needs to be addressed is um, we've seen now that a great deal, and not all, but a great deal of the sort of mass graves were kind of irresponsible ground radar work. Mm -hmm. um, I know one of the major ones, what happened was there wasn't apples in that region. So they tilled the entire ground uh, a couple hundred, like 200 years ago, I think, or 180 years ago. I, I'm not an archaeologist, so don't quote me on this. But um, so they tilled and disrupted the ground entirely and quite a bit of buildup was over that. So one of the sort of discovered, I can't remember this was, discovered areas where they suspected there might be some was literally just a little bit of tillage from a hundred something years ago. Um, but those were the stories that have not been corrected by the media that generated these mass burnings, this sense of division, this anger. So I think we do need to have truth and reconciliation. I think if we talked about a mass grave uh, at a, a private school in Calgary from a hundred years ago with, for lack of a better word, largely white students, there would be like a forensic investigation. They'd be exhuming, they'd be investigating. Um, we've seen almost none of that whatsoever. And that's part of the sort of underlying bigotry where it's like, oh, well, we're not going to like actually look into this because they are other um, most of these people, what they're clamoring for is answers. What they're clamoring for is justice. What they want is truth. Um, and unfortunately, government agents who maybe the agendas they've pushed that have benefited from some of the overreaction uh, from media, from uh, voters, from people out there, um, part of the sort of anti-Christian sentiment, certainly that votes probably a certain way. Um, it doesn't benefit them to then go back and retroactively be like, actually, of this, there's maybe one sort of person missing. And, and just to be clear, this this does nothing to discount the sort of horrific colonial legacy um, of residential schools. Now, you, you will talk to some Indigenous people who say they actually are happy for their experience in residential school. Uh, they got a lot out of it. Other people, I've heard absolute horror stories, like stuff you will not believe. Um, and also mm -hmm. on a fundamental level, what, what the issue was is people just stamped their sort of European colonial understanding of, oh, well, you, you send your kids off to a school away from the family, and then they're formed, and then they come back home. That's not how Indigenous communities work. They're far more interconnected. I'd argue it's probably not how European families worked either, to be honest, <laughs> yeah. but that's sort of what they did. So they weren't coming in to do something that they didn't think was good for their own kids, but they did it in the most sort of horrific way and forced it. It wasn't a family deciding this was best for the kid. It was them sort of stamping this in. Um, beyond that, there were obviously instances of sort of abuse um, and stuff, but I, I think with with the clean water issues, with the tr with the real abuse issues, with the sort of loss of culture that happened as a result of residential schools, if all we're focusing on is mass graves that turn out not to be true, we're not really getting to truth, and we're not really getting to reconciliation on mm -hmm. those core issues. Some of which, by the way, some stuff I've heard is worse than these sort of these 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 alleged mass graves even in the worst case scenarios so there are some real horror stories out there not entirely founded but i mean i've heard them from several people they do seem to be true um, but again i won't repeat them because it's i don't know if they're 100 uh 
verified at this point but hopefully the pope will come in and not just simply regurgitate the same lines we've been hearing they've done nothing to sort of help heal they've done like it's just sowed further division it's just seen churches burned down it's seen indigenous communities feeling more uh sort of marginalized and maligned if the pope comes in and talks about sort of tangible things um clean drinking water one i would definitely advocate for but but talks about truth and talks about the challenges that were faced on a very sort of real level and not in political speak uh, mm-hmm. hopefully he can make a meaningful impact and set the the sort of discourse on on a a real route towards truth and reconciliation. Well, truth and reconciliation is a two-way street, right? I mean, it's not just a just a one-way boulevard. It's got to come both ways, right? So yeah. Uh, and when it comes to massacres, I know that there's been a lot of coverage uh, to their credit, uh, even to uh, legacy media uh, from the New York Post to the National Post. We've seen a lot of stories saying that uh, even calling mass graves uh, fake news, and uh, it's been an interesting uh, kind of turn. But when when you think of um, you know what, what exactly were maybe the the enemies of the church and just the enemies of, of freedom in general uh what were they trying to accomplish by by pushing narratives like this you know maybe the damage is already done adam maybe that's exactly what they wanted you know now it's coming out a year later that uh you know especially just specifically two mass graves that that was probably a, a gross overreach or an overstatement that uh that was caught like wildfire around the world yeah, uh, but maybe just to discredit the church and and what uh, the the steps that were already taken to tr- truth and reconciliation, maybe that was purposely done. What do you think of that? I think that is uh, certainly highly probable. Um, I there, there's an undenying it. It's across the board, and and for anyone to pretend it isn't overt, um, governments, whether it be Jason Kenney provincially, Justin Trudeau uh, federally, they have been targeting Christians. They quite simply have during throughout COVID-19, you could literally drive by, let's say a mosque during Ramadan or a temple during their holy seasons. And it would be packed. It just, it just would right through the core of lockdowns. I remember, and we obviously we're not advocating for anyone to be targeted or persecuted. That's why we never filmed and reported on, Hey, look at this, like, like five blocks away from pastor Arthur Pawlowski's church. There's an absolutely packed mosque while he's being hauled away in cuffs, you could look in the door and there's like 400 shoes there. Mm-hmm. And and there, it, everyone was doing it. People were not following these restrictions. It's, it's as plain as day that lots of uh, religious organizations were not doing this. And rightfully so. We've seen in court, uh, even before the charter challenge, worship generally actually legally exempt. Um, we've seen a number of charges thrown out. Um, and that's before even getting to the the, the sort of charter challenges that's because how it was phrased, phrased was for private social gatherings which worship is not so most of those likely to be thrown out hopefully anyways um, but beyond that across Canada it wasn't just Alberta Alberta got it probably the worst as far as arrests but across Canada it was literally the targeted persecution of Christians when we talked about these uh, these uh, residential schools what happened there like the thing that people have to understand is most dioceses didn't really exist while those residential schools were in place. You had the Oblates and a couple other groups, but we've literally seen dioceses targeted that didn't exist during the residential schools. We -hmm. also saw like the Vietnamese church in Calgary that was burnt down. These people like literally fled communist persecution where their churches were being burnt down to come to Canada like 20 years ago um, to start a church to finally be free and then someone burns down their church because 
100 years prior or something happened with this. And, and I say 100 years prior, I do want to remind people that some of these residential schools were like still kicking around into the 90s. Uh, Justin Trudeau's own dad was heavily responsible for them and sort of uh, mocked people when they criticized the residential schools. So it's not to say that the entire legacy died 100 years ago. This is far more recent in our history than that. Uh, but uh, the vilification, I, I think it's very much finger pointing. When I talk to people, uh, Indigenous people, one thing that I find so interesting, they're very upset with the government. Even Siksika Nation just got $1.3 billion from the Trudeau government. Their population is 3,600, and that's men, women, children, everybody. Um, that's over $400,000 for every man, woman, and child in Siksika Nation. Um, I asked five people in Siksika the day after Justin Trudeau left if they thought they were going to see a cent, and they said no, probably not. Um, so the, the sentiment among these people, even when they encountered abuse, they don't say it's the church. They say it was that priest or it was that sister. Um, where I find lots of their sort of frustration pent up towards is the government, because the government is the one very much using, and they use this sort of the term cottage industry or indigenous smokescreen as no one's willing to look into or question what happens uh, with indigenous communities. So lots of these rich, uh, well-to-do, very Laurentian, Ottawa cabin, uh, cabin industry crowd they just de they do backroom dealings and it's like a billion dollars here a billion dollars here all this infrastructure money that's going missing it's very often done and the people who suffer because it's money that's sort of marked for indigenous issues um, the people who suffer are the sort of average joe working class indigenous folks um, who there should be enough money there for them all to enjoy a decent quality of life but very many don't because it's sort of being uh uh, lorded over by and it's not the chiefs often it's very often the actual government that's a bit of a misunderstanding uh, this the sentiment that, don't get me wrong some chiefs are corrupt and they have sort of pooled a ton of money mm -hmm. uh, but very often what happens is the money is held by the government held by these engineering firms and it's very narrowly allocated i can tell you on sutina they had this beautiful giant brand new sporting complex government funded um they're they have a costco now there they're doing the chief there's doing a lot for people to bring business in but they couldn't get the 10 or 20 grand for a new roof on their church that sort of fun and they couldn't allocate it because it wasn't part of the budget it's the same mm -hmm. thing with fresh water they they have money they'll they might get a 50 million dollar contract for a new water plant that's going to take 12 years but they're like we just need to replace these uv filters it costs two hundred eighty thousand, and they're not getting that and we've, uh, you know, even the Auditor General that we have uh, based out of Ottawa has said there's all kinds of departments <laughs> that, you know, they've audited over the years and they see these inconsistencies and money that's uh, just kind of disappears. But there just doesn't seem to be any kind of movement inside the government to have, actually have some accountability for this, right? And yeah. Making sure it does, the spending does go to the right spot. And I'm sure that's, uh, it's no different in these communities either. And it's um, worse. It's by yeah. far worse because sure. at least yeah. what because what they do is I know I know uh, Harper uh, was trying to bring in some measures for not like direction but accountability so like public spending is made public so the public could generally see oh like this place was given. 84 million dollars for a new school and this uh, instead they built a hockey arena and bought a zamboni that mm. type of stuff and often what you have is the sort of people in power whether it be and there's some really good chiefs and some not, some not so good chiefs elected not elected whatever um, but you'll you'll see uh, sort of advocates and activists being rolled out 
pitching this narrative that isn't really what's happening. Um, some of the chiefs, they do do the right thing and they do spend the money. But if there's no metric of accountability and someone's giving you blank checks, or at least checks for this is for infrastructure project, uh, there are there are indigenous chiefs here making more, I think, more than the prime minister um, mm. for communities or near the amount of the prime minister, which frankly, they're probably doing a better job. But um, for communities of thousands, it's it's there, there is certainly some corruption and some trouble going on. But those dollars pale in comparison, I think, compared to um, the, the amount we cannot question that is in the Indian Affairs sort of bureau, as they still mm. call it. We're like in, Indian is still the name of the Indian yeah, Affairs no sort of thing. So right. that tells you everything <laughs> you need to know. Boy, that's for sure. Well, it, from that uh, that great project that you did last fall and into these uh, these mandates, and there's a lot of interesting things that you found out at the Stampede last year, Adam. That was uh, you were the journalist that asked Premier Jason Kenney, Premier at the time, uh, what he thought about uh, basically vaccine passports, right? Yeah. And uh, and and he was uh, quite adamant in saying that uh, that he wouldn't uh, be doing that. And in other interviews too, he said he didn't even know what they were. And then, of course, uh, we know that the greatest summer ever, he called it in Alberta, came to a pretty abrupt end in mid-September with um, what they called the, uh, what was it called, the Restricted Exemption Program. program. It's not a vaccine mandate. It's it's like one. It just has a different name. Yeah, there you go, right? And and now that we've, uh, as the months have gone on, uh, found out that it's pretty much... uh, put in place to, to coerce people into to taking uh, this inoculation. Uh, and I think we'd be pretty generous, Adam, in saying that the efficacy of these uh, inoculations is probably uh, questionable at best. Um, yeah. So Jason Kane now just recently resigned as premier. Uh, probably one of the things that was his downfall was just how he, how he handled this entire situation with this rep program and these mandates. And Getting back to the pastors that, uh, and I know that you've got some stories about that too. Um, you know, I, I think we've had more Christian pastors arrested in Alberta for uh, for having these um, their assemblies and their services at church than uh, than people arrested for the arson of these churches that we've seen. Yeah. Uh, but that's another story, I guess. But uh, yeah, what, since it all kind of came out, I know that you're also recovering some stories around arenas and rinks. Uh, you know, just parents that would want to take their kids to hockey and tie their skates and they can't even do that boy looking in the rear view mirror adam this is uh this is quite the the big mess that we've had here in, in canada and, and it still kind of goes on to today doesn't it yeah 100 i know pastor Arjbowski, for those who aren't aware he's basically been charged with a litany of charges too long to remember um one actually this week and this is how absurd this is um just judge michael dinkle i believe um, a couple weeks back, uh, Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms lawyer Hatem Kerr was covering and working on a case, um, and he basically argued that that the the health orders that all these people are being charged under for this narrow window, window which was December to January, uh, extends a little beyond that. But the language used in it, as I mentioned earlier, was private social gatherings. Um, so this judge basically ruled. Well, clearly, like a public protest, a soup kitchen, um, worship, like these types of things, but particularly a protest, that's clearly not a private social gathering, obviously. So there's no charge. So it wasn't even a matter of guilty or not. He's like, no, there's no charge. This this never applied. It didn't get to char- charter arguments. It was just clean. Pastor Artur Pavlowski is actually charged in the same window under the same order. 
And this week, despite a judge already saying, well, there's no charge here. What are we talking about? They spent three days and the Crown brought forth nine witnesses. And they're basically just saying, oh, yeah, he was feeding the homeless and they had food here. And they had pictures of the food they were feeding to the homeless people. Three days in court. They didn't even get to a verdict. And this all would amount to probably like a thousand dollar ticket. And they're, it's it's wild. Uh, he also was charged under the Critical Infrastructure Defense Act. He went down to Coots and he preached. And he was talking about like solidarity and the solidarity movement in Poland, a great sort of Catholic rooted mm-hmm. movement. He's very passionate about that as a Polish priest or Polish pastor rather. Um, so he was kind of sharing about that. And he's like, it's important that we stick to our principles. He said peaceful a hundred times. They charged him. He was the first person charged under the Critical Infrastructure Defense Act. So they basically said he was blocking the roads. He went down there and preached for an afternoon and then left. Um, I think he was down there two times in total. But regardless, um, absurd that he was charged under under this Critical Infrastructure Defense Act. They didn't even charge the truckers literally blocking the road. But he visits them briefly and prays and then leaves um, and they charge him. There has been a categorical vendetta against any priests or pastors. Unfortunately, there hasn't been many priests, but against pastors who dared uh, refuse to bend the knee, um, who dared take a stand, who dared to say, uh, hey, listen, I'm actually not going to exclude people from worship. Um, I'm not going to stop feeding the homeless. It's as though these public officials don't understand that people homeless people don't stop needing food just because there's a pandemic and the Mm -hmm. risk of starving to death or freezing to death is more immediate than the risk of COVID-19 by a wide margin. I think that's pretty safe to say. Um, so very often there's been there's been this vilification. I've spoken to some of the lawyers, who the lawyers we have working on this, uh, for people who want to help out, savearthur.com, those donations go to hire lawyers to help people who, like Arthur or people in his situation. Um, we've defended a couple pastors um, who've been in similar situations because you can't take on the government. They'll spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a lawsuit. Most of these people, Pastor Arthur said himself that he would have been bankrupt by now and eventually would have had to sign a deal. But because people are willing to donate, um, hundreds of thousands of dollars are being used to so he can have a legal defense and actually uh, take a stand. But ultimately, what you're seeing is this this ongoing persecution. He spent 51 days in jail. He's been incarcerated three times, arrested, I think, more than five times, five times in the year I've been around, at least, um, in dramatic style arrests, including he landed on a plane and they arrested him on the tarmac. Uh, pulling him off on the side of the road and like literally think of what think what you will of pastor arthur pavlowski i know lots of people including him says he knows he's not for everybody he's loud and he's brash and whatever what you're seeing is a pastor who opened his church up to his community very many people because he does street ministry are people who are recovering from addiction have very sort of rough backgrounds histories um and they go through so much hardship and then he's there for them. He's, he said, I'm not shutting down. I'm not, not going to be here for my people. Same thing, the people on the streets that he feeds week after week after week and has been doing for 20 something years. He's like, listen, they're they're They need me to be there to feed them. This, these couple meals, the two, three times a week, we're downtown feeding them. That might be keeping them alive. Some of these people unvaccinated, not allowed to go to the mustard seed, not allowed to these other places. This is their last refuge. And going to preach at a couple events, a couple protests, standing up for freedom. Uh, That was his crimes. Dislike them all you will, but his crimes were all charter protected 
fundamentally Canadian things that if you were to suggest someone was being persecuted for outside of these weird COVID-19 bizarro world, you'd think that was absurd, but that's exactly what we saw happen. And if, if anyone's like, oh, well, he needed to be made an example of because he's so brash and he's so outspoken and he's so uncompromising. Well, uh, fortunately to counter that argument, we have a veritable uh, laundry list of pastors of every different background. Pastor Tim Stevens, very much uh, sort of uh, bookish and very intelligent, very biblical sort of Baptist pastor um, who's not confrontational. Um, they said, you're going to be arrested. He's like, hey, I'll be out front. See you soon. Um, James Coates, uh, he went in and turned himself in. He spent, I believe, 30 days in prison, a very different personality as well. Some other street pastors, we even saw Pastor Derek Reimer, uh, a street pastor, when there was an injunction in Calgary, they actually arrested him. We walked up right as they completed the arrest and we grabbed the footage and put it on social media. I think it had like 170,000 views by the time he got to interrogation. And they basically were like, oops, sorry, we didn't mean to arrest you. Have a nice day. Um, so it, it's 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 just incessant. Um, the, the argument there was they're saying he was using amplification. They were playing music all day. And then he picked up the mic and said a few words about Jesus. And then they tried to arrest him quite suddenly. So um, there's been this targeted ongoing effort to sort of silence across Canada, Alberta probably being one of the worst examples, though. Um, and I, I think that it, to deny that there's at least some anti-Christian sentiment um, is absurd frankly. Uh, but I mean, it's in the Bible. We were told this would happen. The world hated yes, it. Uh, yeah. So um, wh whenever whenever you see this, um, for very, many people, um, it's validation. And, and there is a sort of martyrdom in spending 51 days in prison, not knowing what's going to happen to you. Uh, Pastor Tim Stevens arrested heart-wrenching footage in front of his kids several times, plucked away. Um, the sentiment that the sort of, I mean, these may not be Catholic churches, but they're certainly sort of faith-filled uh, uh, gatherings of, of, of uh, church communities, Christian believers. Um, while we've seen other churches quite simply dwindle in their numbers, because when things got the hardest and people needed their church the most, the churches sort of backed away. Uh, these communities who said no in an uncompromising fashion said, no, we're going to feed the homeless. No, we're going to preach the word of God and no, we're going to be there. They're all buying new buildings. Like they're out of space. They literally cannot fit the people in who are craving that sort of authentic interaction. We've been given so much in the in the Catholic Church, haven't we, Adam? I mean, uh, you know, speaking to someone as you're a Catholic as well, Adam, and you know, we've we've already got a crisis in our church. We know that the the presence of the real presence of the Eucharist is uh, is questioned and not believed by the majority of our fellow parishioners that even show up for Mass on Sundays. We're just getting out. I think this past weekend was the first weekend in Alberta, at least, that the um, the dispensation was lifted for folks to go to Mass. So we're talking over mm. a year and a half. I, I think of the, the great St. Charles Borromeo who dealt with a real plague in Milan several hundred years ago. And, uh, you know, what made him so famous, even still today, is how he would be present to the parishioners, to all the people of Milan, and even when they couldn't gather inside of um, church buildings or other buildings, he would have catechism classes on street corners. Uh, he would still give uh, communion to, to folks on the tongue. Uh, holy water fonts would be everywhere. He'd just have them separated for people that were sick and people that weren't sick. 
during that plague, over 15% of the people died in Milan over the course of about a year and a half, two years. And that was a city of 150,000. So that was pretty serious. Like we're talking about, you know, these carts going around collecting dead bodies. So probably a very surreal place to be at that time. Um, COVID-19 is not the plague, Adam. Um, I think we were kind of, <laughs> we, we saw that pretty quickly. Yeah. And we still see today that, uh, you know, anybody that's starting to compare COVID-19 to, to something like the plague or, or something similar to that, or just, it just doesn't make any sense anymore. Yeah. So where do you think the, the church has kind of dropped the ball with this? I, I know for myself, it was a little, a little disheartening to see that even at the very top of our church saying that taking a vaccine was an act of love. Um, that's pretty strong words um, for something that mm-hmm. a lot of people have a, a lot of different convictions, especially with conscience. That, uh, you know, I had one one of my Protestant friends actually said it best to me just a couple months ago. He said, you know, if the Catholic Church would just have just stood up and said, listen, if you want to take this, you can. But if you, if you don't, you don't have to because it's a matter of conscience. He said, this would have all been over such a long time ago. And yet, look at all these people suffering. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's pretty hard for me to, to come back with some sort of a, an intelligent response to that, Adam. I didn't really know what to say. But yeah, what are your thoughts on this whole thing? How does the yeah, church Yeah, so this? I think uh, I'm just, uh, I, I, the number for the Catechism of the Catholic Church on vaccines uh, escapes me, but it, uh, it becomes basically um, sinful the second it becomes mandated. Um, so literally anyone who's looked at the Catechism, it's pretty clearly broken down that any sort of whatsoever even for a proven vaccine coercion um it makes the entire sort of interaction uh condemnable so that should have been clearly stated by church authorities you know i think even talking to like i mentioned uh just center for constitutional freedoms doing some incredible work even john carpe said at the start when we didn't know pausing some charter freedoms and holding back and maybe suspending the obligation to attend mass or canceling mass um, for a week or two or finding alternatives. Um, That's not John saying that, but he was saying when you don't know exactly what's happening, taking some precautious measures is, is in line with sort of defending the dignity, protecting uh, individuals. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but eventually those sort of metrics, particularly constitutional, they need to be answered to in court. Uh, That's what was missed on a broader societal level. Listen, I'm going to tell you, I worked at a church and there was a Werther's original jar at the front and right at the very onset of COVID-19. And the sentiment then was like, this is probably kind of dangerous for the older community, especially. Well, every day after mass, it was the older community reaching into that Werther's original jar. And there was a bit of a stink about it, but I took the Werther's original jar away. I put it away because I didn't want everyone reaching into the same thing and getting everyone sick. I'm like, that's a pretty sensible measure. Um, So I think the original approach, um, maybe in the first couple of weeks, sure, you want to save lives. You're trying to be careful. You're trying to do all of those things. Um, What we saw after that, though, um, was, uh, I don't know how much I can say, but I, I feel like in times of need for certain communities, whether that be youth, um, whether that be, uh, I, I think the people who go to church every day and they're kind of happy with that, that probably they booked in early and they got in and maybe they weren't all too affected. But some of the people who are sort of on the margins, who need the support network, who are sort of sensing there's something in the church for them, but they're not sure. Um, when the church sort of uh, receded and went into hiding 
at a time when she should have been reaching out and walking among the people. Um, I think very many people felt abandoned. Now, some of them went to other mm. churches. Some of them may never go into another church again. Um, and the moral culpability of that is on these bishops and these priests who failed. Um, I think it's St. John Chrysostom who said uh, that the road to hell is paved with the the bones of priests and the lampposts yes. are the skulls of bishops. Um, so uh, thank God for moral culpability. Lots of this moral culpability will fall to these church authorities and perhaps not the pool, poor souls who uh, were led astray or at least not supported in their hour of need. Um, this was an opportunity undeniably and with full i understand fully like you look at some of the situations with the church negotiating with communist governments so they can still provide the sacrament compromising some things listen i'm not going to weigh in i i'm not in favor of that generally but mm. in it, we saw the same thing with the uh with mexico with the with the governmental regime and we saw the viva christus ray sort of uh we've seen we've seen times when the government had to sort of go along with church authorities in order to prioritize the sacraments or in order to maintain the ongoing sort of ministry and salvific ministry of the church. That is not what we saw this time. We saw the church go online. Uh, we saw the church abandoning their own convictions. I don't think it's just the people who maybe don't believe in the true presence of Christ. I think perhaps some priests and perhaps some bishops are having crises of faith. Um, and I think yes. the sentiment of John Paul II and the Bible over and over and over again, that we need be not afraid um, while still executing sort of common sense and and bringing in measures, I think if I think like with some of these indigenous issues, if the church would have been bold and courageous um, and taken some important stance, for example, we could have saved a lot of lives by taking fast and aggressive action in very vulnerable communities, for example, hospitals, nursing homes, some of these other environments mm -hmm. um, for communities with immunocompromised uh, situations. Um, there, there was a million ways to save many of those lives. But what we ended up doing was was not that. We ended up seeing a lot of people suffering. We saw an increase in mental illness. We saw sort of a breakdown, uh, family units, abuse increased. Um, there was all these sort of negative outcomes in a time. These times of, of hardship are when people turn to their faith and say, I need, I need something. And that is when the church precisely needs to reach out and say, and we are that something we're here for you. Um, and it's hard for a church to do that if they don't have the conviction that they're the living church of Jesus Christ. Um, and we need our church authorities from the Pope down to understand that on a fundamental level. Some do. Some priests have been doing absolutely incredible stuff. Some bishops have been doing stuff um, uh, in order to ensure that no one's ever turned away from worship. But I think the overall message for there to be no dissent from the now quite clearly wrong uh, perspective of some authorities, you can look at you can look at the world right now. Anyone anywhere in the world can fly anywhere and go anywhere and do anything, regardless of vaccine status, unless you're Canadian. Mm -hmm. The whole world is open, like it's or North it's, Korean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like we're lit for people out there who are listening to this, who maybe don't follow this stuff and just listen to this podcast, the whole rest of the world, everybody else that they're, they've moved on. Mm -hmm. um, they, they might have restrictions and certain things or masking in hospitals or sort of niche things, but the sentiment that we cannot leave the country um, is, is absurd that unvaccinated people cannot leave the country. It's not in line with the dignity of the human person by any way, shape or form. And for church authorities to not be saying that is, 
a serious affront, similar to you're going to decry uh, abortion, you're going to decry human rights violations for Indigenous communities, you're de going to decry genocides abroad, um, all of these sort of things. Well, when, when you literally have 20% of the population, 15%, whatever, whatever number you look at, unable to leave the country, unable to travel, that's seriously concerning. Furthermore, I'd like to add that it, we talked a little bit earlier about the targeting persecution of pastors, uh, the burning of churches, the negative sort of uh, dialogue surrounding uh, Christianity, broadly speaking, with regards to the indigenous, indigenous schools, keeping in mind that it was, in fact, the governments who were keeping the indigenous schools running. They largely sort of contracted up to the church to do the work. It was all government policy keeping that going. But you see all of that sort of ongoing in, in, in a in a troubling fashion for a long period of time where other countries have moved on we can quite clearly see it's wrong justin trudeau clearly has something of a vendetta on this front that is no longer yes. scientific and church authorities other than whispers behind the scenes don't have the courage to dare challenge it even when it's wrong and when it's apparently wrong and and i guess that leads to i know from my perspective and it's it's something that i you know even in the church, we kind of hold our, our golden idols a little bit. We just do, right? It's our own individual lives. Sometimes it's it's the church itself. But, um, you know, sometimes when you're tied so close to the government that you, defend, you depend on money and, um, you know, tax deductible, you know, if you have a donation, you get a tax receipt and all those kind of things. Um, when you get tied into the government like that, Adam, there's certain things that you've got to do to, to kind of toe the line, if you know what I mean. And I think we're seeing that not only with some of these these mandates that have come out and the lack of response from the church, but also we're seeing throughout this this month that's named after a vice for crying out loud, Adam, and yeah. and what we're seeing in our own Catholic schools, even uh, even in Alberta, that are that are publicly funded, and um, yeah, that's it's a, it's a little disturbing, isn't it? It does seem like the, we've got some shackles thrown on us, and uh, and for that reason, the truth is not coming out. Well, I mean, is it your 30% tax or your pieces of silver? Which one, which yeah. one do you want? Cause it's, it's at what point do you continue to go along with uh, like what this government is doing? Um, there, there, there's also, uh, there's been I'm trying to remember the details off the top of my head, but I, I believe that there has been research done that actually churches that sort of rescind and, and leave their tax charitable status behind actually end up saving money because the sort of political activism they can then get their congregants involved in actually leads to like tax breaks and a whole bunch of different sort of situations where the the tax credit for people donating is not as beneficial as having a church that's politically active um there is also i can't remember the numbers off the top of my head i think like something like 10 percent of a church can be involved in political activism funding wise it's six or ten or something. I'm sure it's probably being changed by the Trudeau government. But the sentiment of Catholics to be absolutely apolitical—that uh, is—that's not—that's not what we're called to do by any metric at all whatsoever. No. We see this ongoing uh, reference to like Romans um, with like, oh, well, just be obedient, and that's that's the entire thing. Well, yeah, that goes to a certain point. But if if being if the government says go murder somebody. By your logic of just be obedient, they, they paint that as a simple black and white thing of be obedient to the government. Well, I can tell you, uh, the saints during the Nazis reign were not those who were obedient to the government. They were those who were uh, resistant and pushed back and fought. So uh, the sentiment that you're just supposed to go along as a Catholic is, is quite absurd. Um, 
And I think, I think we do need to remember, while with a spirit of obedience and docility towards ecclesiastical authority, um, the, the Pope saying something or a bishop saying something or a priest saying something that defies the catechism of the Catholic Church, docility mm -hmm. to church authority is not complying with his opinion. It's being docile towards church authority. So if the catechism clearly states something, if uh, an official encyclical clearly states something, that isn't overwhelmed by the opinion of a pope on an airplane or uh, a bishop making an offhand remark. Um, and we as Catholics are called to be active. There's such a thing as a fraternal correction. And yes, it applies to bishops and priests as well. It isn't just for us to correct each other. Um, and I think while that may seem to some, oh, well, we should just sort of listen to our bishops and be very quiet and everything like that. Um, that's not we're, what we're called to. We're, we're called to sort of serve this role um, as sort of kings and prophets and and, uh, and contribute to that. Uh, if there's error there, the compassionate thing to do, because the errors of, say, a bishop or a priest, that reverberates throughout their entire community. Um, if they're in a state of sin or if they are uh, factually errant on something, with all with all humility approaching them and saying, listen, the catechism says this, uh, this is what these encyclicals say, um, what you're doing is not in line with the, the sort of body of the church's authority, um, and I think you should probably reconsider your position. Uh, that is the charitable and caring thing to do. Simply going along with your life and not concerning may lead others into sort of a spiritual disarray and chaos. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think people do have to have that courage. Obviously, lots of people have opinions, and you might be the guy who's constantly calling the bishop and bugging him. Um, but I, I think that there are times where sort of the Holy Spirit um, speaks to us and is like, listen, this isn't right. It's time for you to step up. We've seen many saints correct popes and bishops alike uh, throughout the history of the church. Very first pope, right, Adam? I think yep. that was uh, uh, St. Paul correcting uh, Pope Peter. The very yep. first one that was back in Galatians, I believe, right? The yep. fraternal collect, uh, correction uh, yep. done charitably. Um, but, uh, yeah, Peter had the, uh, the humility to, to accept that as well. Um, yeah. so unjust laws, as we see with something that I know you're passionate about, I certainly am as well. And that is the, the question of the right to life and, and abortion on demand that we have in Canada. We're seeing some, some really amazing things happening in the States. You know, we're seeing this, this groundswell of, you know, potentially a real, um, turning point in, uh, in, in abortion and access to abortion and, uh, you know, we have nothing in Canada. We have no laws at all in Canada. But uh, I just pray, Adam, that the church is prepared for this because, you know, we, we need to be, you know, right spiritually. We need to be living in a state of grace to take on uh, the forces of evil, especially this one. Um, boy, this is, <laughs> it's like Mother Teresa said, you know, it's, uh, she basically said if, if abortion in the womb is legal, then nobody is safe, right? No. Yeah. And um, and to say she also said, you know, if, to say that there's too many children in the world is like saying there there's too many flowers in the world. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we're seeing that, that the opposition in the U.S. towards Roe versus Wade, uh, this anger and vitriol, it's all towards the Catholic Church. Isn't that something? I hope that people are reading this and seeing that this is a sign that uh, there really are two kingdoms, as uh, the great uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen said. Right. There's the kingdom of of light and of Jesus Christ. And then there's the kingdom of darkness and there's no in between you either belong to one or the other. And, uh, so I just hope that we're, we're spiritually prepared for this. Adam, I, I want to say thank you too, for, for being a great witness in the secular space and being in media. And even though you don't obviously say that you're Catholic in all of your, 
or you're a believer of Christ and all of your your reporting, I think it's pretty evident to me. Just half of uh, it. <laughs> there you go. It's pretty evident to me that uh, you have the light of Christ in your in your heart, and I think that means a lot. So tell people where they can track you down and uh, follow your work. Yeah, best bet is rebelnews.com. That's the spot if you want to just really check out my stuff. I always post it uh, Twitter at ATSOS. A-T-S-O-O-S. Um, and then always at the at that Rebel News page, you can scroll down to the bottom. There's like a journalist category. You can see my like 10 latest or whatever. Uh, but yeah, that's the best spot to check it out. Um, and then as always, some of these, uh, if you want to he- help out with some of these pastors uh, through the Democracy Fund, uh, you can actually make tax receipt eligible donations. Um, and that helps sort of these pastors who couldn't afford to fight back. Uh, Pastor Arter, Pastor Tim Stevens, Pastor James Coates, many of these other sort of people, um, some sort of being defended through the Democracy Fund, some through other organizations, but without the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms and the Democracy Fund and groups like that, um, these people wouldn't be able to stand up against the government. But yeah, for me, Rebel News. Well, big thanks to Adam Sos for joining us again on this episode of the Catholic Connect podcast. Uh, referred to a reference from the Catechism of the Catholic Church when it came to conscience rights. And uh, there's actually a lot of good stuff in the Catechism of the Catholic Church on it. But specifically, I think this is the one Adam was referring to. At least this is the one I thought of right away. It's uh, reference number 1782. It says, man has the right to act in conscience and in freedom. So as personally to make moral decisions, he must not be forced to act contrary to his conscience, nor must he be prevented from acting according to his conscience, especially in religious matters. So again, the Catechism of the Catholic Church and Scripture uh, gives us a lot of um, guidance uh, in this uh, very confused world that we live in. I highly recommend that you pick up a a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and there's a lot of good stuff in this section here. It's uh, under Article 6 in Moral Conscience, and uh, you'll find that starting around um, reference number 1776. So thanks again to Adam, and thanks again to you for listening to the podcast. Uh, you know, I there was this old saying from uh, one of our sports stations in Canada. It's called Fueled by Fans, and uh, I really believe that this podcast is fueled by grace. And uh, maybe we'll put on a coffee mug or a T-shirt someday. I don't know. But thanks for your prayers. Thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. Your feedback's great. Conversations I'm having with so many of you from all around the world. It is a blessing. Uh, This universal church, it is the best. It is so great. And uh, what a great gift that our Lord left to us, the church and uh, the people in the church. That's what it's all about. And our community, we need each other on this journey. So thank you so much, everyone. And remember, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're all over social media. Please drop us a review uh, wherever you listen to your fine podcasts and subscribe as you see fit. And uh, if you're not a Catholic and no one's ever invited you to join the church, well, I'm inviting you to join the church. If you ever have any questions, uh, I'd be happy to help you out. And we got lots of other people in the church that would love to help you take this step to uh, experience the sacramental life, receiving communion, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord worthily, and going to confession, you'll never be the same. And uh, we'd love to have you on our team. And for us Catholics out there, hey, we know what we've got to do to continue to be a beacon of light in this world. And we got to live that sacramental life. We've got the game plan all laid out for us. Now we just got to execute it. So you got to go to confession at least three times every year, every Advent, every Lent, and any time you're in a state of mortal sin, don't even spend a second of your life there. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. God bless. We'll chat with you very soon.